In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 13th Sunday after Pentecost, and we're continuing in chapter 14 where Jesus is accompanied by this large crowd of people. They are just that. They're a crowd. They're hangers-on. They're rubberneckers. They're groovies. Um, I'm not sure how else to say that. Uh, there are people that are just there to watch and say, hey, look what he did. And the recipe from moving from a groupie to a disciple is a very difficult one. Uh, so difficult that this is why we have lectionaries to make our clergy uh, preach on uh, lessons that we probably would just avoid and go on to others if we just got to pick you know, our own scripture. So here I am having to preach on hate when I'd really rather not, right? And so uh, Jesus turns to the crowd and he tells them what uh, they're going to need to do to move from a groupie to a disciple. And Moses has had to do the same thing. Uh, Moses here in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30 is speaking to the crowd. Again, you'll remember that Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. The second time that Moses goes through the law with the people, he summarized what God has done for them. He summarized again what their response needs to be. You remember that they've come out of Egypt, that they've come out of the wilderness. They're now on that eastern shore of the Jordan River, and they're looking over the Jordan to the promised land, right? Moses has looked over. They're able to look over. They're able to look over uh, quite beautifully, right, because of the large valley there that the Jordan sits in, and that uh, low desert uh, that accompanies it, and then the high hills of uh, Judah beyond it. And he turns to the people of God, to the nation of Israel, and he says, you have a choice. And their choice is necessary for their dwelling in the land. There is a response that they need to make. Now, does that mean that uh, then it's um, uh, you know, their reward uh, for getting the promised land? Is it something that they've done? Is it their accomplishment, right? Are they the ones giving themselves the promised land? No, no, and no. We know it's a gift from God. It's a promise of God. He's told them it's for you. But he's saying you now have a role to play. You have to do something in order to take the land. You have a response to make, right? And this is the people of God. And so often um, the people of God have gotten confused. Oh, if we participate, does that mean that somehow we're getting some credit? Uh, and so we just don't need to do any work at all? It's confused thinking. Uh, what Moses is telling them is they have a necessary response to make. They have a choice to make, and they're going to uh, participate in coming into the promised land and into the kingdom of God. The choice is between uh, loving the Lord, right? Loving the Lord, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments, which Moses summarizes in life and good, right? Or going their own way, which he describes as death and evil. And sometimes we think about this as some kind of a reward process, right? Uh, because I've done this good thing, then the Lord is going to reward me uh, with something, right? Oh, if I promise to uh, walk in his ways and keep his commandments, then he's going to say, oh, look at that. You did this good thing. So now I'm going to give you the reward of the promise. <laughs> and what uh, that misses is the natural order of creation. It misses the way in which God has made creation. And the more that we pull back and think of God as being this parent in the sky who gives a blessing rather than a God who has created the natural order, uh, the more confused our theology becomes and the less we're able to really to describe it 
the people around us because the people around us need to be able to hear us give a good description of what life and good looks like and how uh, keeping God's commandments is a good for them. That they get natural benefits, they get obvious benefits by walking in the ways of God, by living according to His ways. They're not waiting for a reward, the reward is in itself. And we need to be able to be good at describing that, how love is a reward in itself, how um, honesty and integrity, how righteousness, how justice, uh, right, how um, uh, fidelity, uh, chastity have blessings within themselves. And when we step out of that, we step into curses. And so we have to be able to be very clear in understanding that. And we can see how confused the nation of Israel was because they couldn't see that at all. They couldn't see that at all. And of course, uh, they're trying to walk into a physical territory. They're trying to walk into a geography while we see that the Lord is offering much more than a geography. He's offering much more than a square foot. He's offering to us the kingdom of God. He's offering to us to live with him in eternity and the kingdom of God according to his will. And living in the kingdom of God means, again, obeying the commandments of God, loving him, walking in his ways, keeping the commandments. This is what it looks like to love God, to obey His voice, and this great phrase, to hold fast. I've spoken of that image before about uh, the sailors on the great tall ships that used to sail in the, the age of tall ships before steam power, and how uh, you know, you've seen some with the, the tattoos on their knuckles, right? Uh, hold fast, right? You've got to hold on to the ropes at the top of the mast or else you're going to fall into the crashing waves of the sea and that is who we are we are in a church that is in the midst of a storm this world is a storm and we have to hold fast to the gospel if we start spending all of our time complaining about the waves and talking about how dangerous they are and how nobody's ever seen waves this big before and uh, you know nobody else has seen uh, waves this dangerous before, all of our focus is going to be on what? The waves. Rather than on the mass and on the rigging and on the commandments of God. And our inability to be able to describe clearly the commandments of God and His ways and the blessings that naturally flow from them are because we've been spending all of our time focused on the ways. So keep our focus upon holding fast to the ways of God and being able to give a good report for the benefits that we receive from them. And that takes discipline. That takes discipline. It's the discipline that we see in an apprentice. And this is the language that Jesus is using, of course, as a carpenter to describe what it takes to be a good apprentice. A good apprentice doesn't just watch the master carpenter build, right? He doesn't just stand around. There are some people that you'll see on the work site that just watch. It's like they never really do anything, right? They never really learn how to do anything. They're always watching somebody else work. Right? They're never actually getting into it. Because when you actually get into it, you have the opportunity for failure and for getting a splinter and for breaking a thumb with a hammer. Right? And so he's talking to this crowd that's accompanying them and he's saying, you're rubberneckers now, you're groupies, and if you want to be disciples, if you want to be apprenticed, that's what I'm doing. I'm offering you apprenticeship 
into my trade, into the house of my trade. And his trade and his house is the kingdom of God, to live as sons of God. That is the apprenticeship that he's offering. And we can see that the crowd mostly disperses. And that at the foot of the cross, there's very few that are left that have been practicing and yearning for discipleship to learn the ways of the kingdom of God. We all know that any kind of discipline, that any kind of uh, discipleship, that any kind of apprenticeship requires sacrifice. When we choose to become an apprentice in a trade, that means that we're going to give up something else. It means that we're going to have to give up the time. We're going to have to give up um, the energy, the ability. We're going to have to give our focus over, right? And that we're going to have to depend upon that trade for our livelihood. And that's what Jesus is saying about discipleship and the kingdom of God. He's saying there's going to have to be a sacrifice. There's other things you're going to have to give up. There's things that you're going to have to pass over. And you're going to have to depend upon my ways in the kingdom of God for everything that you have. And he uses this word hate to kind of, you know, wake us up and say, hello, you can't just do both because that's what the groupie does, right? The groupie stands back and says, I'd like to watch. This looks great. I'll use all kinds of words and say how wonderful it is that you're doing, but I'm not really willing to sacrifice or give up what I'm doing to participate. And so Jesus says that that starts with our family. Because from our family, we get our identity, and especially in the ancient world, we get our very substance. This was one of the great dangers in joining the Christian church, was that, uh, you know, who was going to feed you when you were sick? Who was going to care for you if you became injured? Who was going to bury you when you died? Without the family network, without the tribe, all of those things would go away, and that person would be without any kind of support, right? Without any kind of, of substance. And the church became that substitute family. The church buried their dead. The church cared for those widows in distress. The church raised up orphans. And the only way that we can do that is by saying, I've made a commitment to God. And as long as my family is committed to God, as long as my friends are committed to God, then we're at peace and we're at one with each other. But if they choose to separate themselves from God and from his peace, then I'm going to continually search for peace with them, but I'm not going to blow smoke and say that we're in agreement. I'm going to have to clearly describe the ways in which we're not. And so uh, hate is indeed a strong word meant to wake us up, but it speaks to the sacrifice. It speaks to the things that we have to give up in order to bear the cross of Christ. And again, uh, there are some uh, who would try to describe, uh, you know, following the Lord as being, you know, one prayer, uh, one statement of belief, one statement of, uh, you know, confirmation, uh, and that uh, the work is done. And this is clearly not what Jesus is describing, right? He doesn't say pick up the cross once and then set it back down and just enjoy the rest of your life, right? He says uh, that you have to bear your cross and come after me to become my disciple. That bearing of the cross is, uh, is exactly what Jesus does. So what does Jesus do? Jesus bears the sin of the world out of love for the world. He bears the sin that they could not bear for their benefit. It's an act of self-sacrifice, is it not? That's what we are called to do. We are bear, called to bear sacrifice for one another, to, to bear each other up, to, to lift each other up. That's what we're doing here this morning. We're not here to have a quiet moment with the Lord. We're not here to, to be filled ourselves. We're here to bear each other's burdens, to bear one another up, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to, to, to um, speak the word of God, right, to one another. 
That's what it means to, to bear the cross. It means to, to look for the needs of our brothers and sisters and to, to bear them up in a self-sacrificial way. And he says we can't do that naively. And many try. Right? Just high in the sky, everything's going to be great, no problems, right? And there's no problems in the church, right? There's not going to be any problems. I'm going to come into this church and I'm going to come into Christian fellowship and we're all just going to get along. That's naive, right? There are dangers and there are difficulties and there are struggles in bearing the cross, right? And we have to be um, honest and open and wise about what those costs are. We have to see them with eyes wide open. And he uses the, the image of budgeting, right? Budgeting, it's a great image, right? A household that doesn't have a budget has no clue what they have or where their money is going, right? I don't know. A church that doesn't have a budget, that doesn't know what they're gonna spend their money on, where it's gonna go, doesn't know what they have or where they spent their money. Where did your money go? I don't know. He's using the image of the budget. We have to have a budget. We have to be able to project the cost. He uses the image of building this tower, which is an image of the kingdom of God, right? This storehouse for the saints. And we have to know what it's going to cost to do it. Or else, what's going to happen? We won't be able to finish and we'll be mocked. And this brings dishonor upon the church. If we enter into the Christian walk and then we say halfway through, whoa, that got a little too serious. That got a little too hard. That got a little bit too, um, you know, uh, difficult. So I'm just going to walk away from the church. I'm going to walk away from my commitment. I'm going to walk away from that walk of integrity. We don't just get mocked ourselves, but... The world around us looks and says, see, they were talking the talk, but they couldn't, what, walk the walk. And that doesn't just bring dishonor upon us, it brings dishonor upon the whole church. Again, he uses the image for the king of war. Know who your enemy is. Know what the strength of the enemy is. Know what we have to go into. So in other words, we don't just pretend that the waves aren't there. We're not going to pretend there's no storm. We're going to gauge their height. We're going to calculate the wind. We're going to be aware of the danger that we're in. And then we're going to prepare and act accordingly. In our life, in our common life, in our spiritual life, we're going to survey the landscape and see the dangers around us. And we're going to adequately prepare ourselves and our children and one another to hold fast to the ways of the kingdom of God. And we're not just going to do it once. <clears throat> we're going to do it every day. And every day is going to require a new clear-eyed assessment of our walk with Christ. <clears throat> and this is what Philemon has to do when he gets this letter from St. Paul. This letter is the last in the series of letters by Paul. Uh, it is one of the later ones written, but it's last uh, because they're um, ordered in uh, order of length. Philemon has no chapters, right? It's one chapter, and we have the entire letter printed here in our bulletin. This is the entire book of Philemon. It's the whole story. And Paul is writing to this man in Colossae who had become a disciple of Christ, 
had become a leading member of the church there, so much so that one of the house groups was meeting in Philemon's house. <clears throat> Philemon has this uh, servant who is useless. Right? I've been useless. I don't know about you all. It's not a pleasant thing. Right? You feel bad about yourself. You feel bad about the people around you. It's an awful place to be. Useless ran away. What else can useless do? And he ran to Paul. And Paul, through prayer and intercession, was able to make him useful. And that's what Onesimus means. It means useful. So whatever useless's name was before, when baptized and prepared through the power of the Holy Spirit, he becomes useful. And Paul says, he's now useful to me so much that I want him to stay with me. But I don't want to make that decision, even though I could force you to make it, because I have that kind of authority in the church. He says, I want you to come to the place of understanding and to make the decision for yourselves. And this is exactly what Moses is telling the nation of Israel. It's exactly what Jesus is telling the crowd. He's saying, I could force you, but what benefit would that be? Because there would be no love. There is no love in force. And so out of love and faith, I'm encouraging you to take useful back into your house and to treat him not as a bondservant, not as a slave, but as a brother. So now, useless had to recognize who he was and become useful. Philemon has to recognize that he had been keeping a man who is now a brother in Christ as a slave. And he has to, out of his own love and faith, respond to Paul and free him to make him a brother. And he has to do that out of love. Even though it's a very dangerous thing. It's hard for us to talk about slavery in this way because of the American experience. The ancient experience is very different. There's no race involved. There's slaves that are freed and taken into slavery all the time. It's accepted universally around the ancient world. And because this slave had run away, all of Philemon's slaves could do the same thing. And so to free this one would be a radical step in his household and in his community. And it would be a way of him saying, I am leaving behind the old way of slavery that we've known, and I'm taking up the way of the cross, which is total and complete sacrifice in love. And I'm going to have to make the decision myself. And that's a decision that we have to make every day. The tradition tells us that Philemon becomes one of the earliest bishops of Colossae. And Onesimus, one of the first bishops of Ephesus. And they live long lives proclaiming the gospel of Christ because of their willingness to lay down their lives and take up their cross in sacrifice and in wisdom with eyes wide open to the dangers at hand. May we with eyes wide open be willing to take up our cross, to leave being groupies, and become disciples for the kingdom of God.